Good to see you guys. So a um, couple of things before we get started. One, if you were not here last weekend, uh, I was here at the seven o'clock and then I went out to Shelbyville. I heard uh, Mike teach here and Greg teach there. I feel like both of those guys did a fantastic job. If you weren't here last week, Mike, who... Um, some, yeah, there you go. There's a Mike fan over here. Um, no, sometimes it's hard to go into the Bible and teach something that, that is very culturally different than, than kind of what we experience now. He did a fantastic job with that. And, and again, Greg did uh, the same thing out in Shelbyville. Uh, that was number one. Number two, I was not there because I was not invited, but they say the Women's Summit was pretty amazing Friday. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they had 1,050 women at the Women's Summit. That's a lot of, a lot of ladies in one room. And um, with men, you have to like harpoon them and drag them to stuff like that. Women, you just like whisper, summit, and they all show up. And it didn't, it didn't hurt that there was like a Julia's dessert truck out there too. That's, that's not too bad. But anyways, that was a good night. Um, so I hear. And then um, third thing is, so I have to say two nice things, and then, then I have a favor to ask of you. Uh, Okay, we're, this is a low. This is a low service for us, and and um, there's actually some seats in here because it's spring break week. But we are in a a, a season of kind of a very good problem. We're at about ninety percent of what we were pre-COVID, uh, which is good. Yeah, that's good. Um, the bad part about that is I remember all of my conversations pre-COVID were, "What do we do now?" Because we have no space. So um, we do two services on Saturday, if you see where I'm going with this. And I would love to invite you <laughs> to come check out Saturday services in the hopes of opening up some seats in our Sunday services so more people can come in and hear the gospel. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna see that person on Saturday <laughs> next week. No, I'm just teasing. No, but um, seriously, the Saturday services are fantastic. Um, there's no cameras on, so I say a lot of stuff that's that's dumb. And um, but if you ever have thought about going to the Saturday services, I'm not just saying this to sound nuts. We need about about 200 people from this service and 200 people from the nine to go over to Saturday nights. And our Saturday night services are not not as big as this. We have a little bit a little bit of space. But if we're going to continue to grow here, I don't know what else to do at this moment. There's no land to buy. There's no way to add to this building. We don't have enough parking spaces. It's, it's tough, and my greatest fear, I'm not kidding, the thing that keeps me up at night is people walking in here and then walking out because there's not a seat for them. That, that bothers me profusely, and so I just wanna make sure we don't get to that. Okay, that's all the stuff I had to say. Um, let's get to the word. So, we're in a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written from Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, to a church in southern Greece, and the problem was is that though this church was prosperous, they had tremendous amounts of freedom and privilege. They had access to the word of God. They had access to good leadership. The problem was instead of leaning into the wisdom of God, this group of Christians was starting to lean back into, as Paul says, the wisdom of the world, the ways of the world. Let's just call it culture. And they started to depend more on culture than they did on the truth from, from God and God's word. These letters were written because, of course, when we turn away from the truth and we start following things that are not true, all kinds of problems follow that. And that's what this book of the Bible is about. 
One of the things that, that Mike taught about last week, it was a short chapter, but a very fascinating chapter, was that Paul decided to give up freedoms he had to eat whatever he wanted because he didn't wanna be a stumbling block to weaker Christians or even non-believers who were confused by him partaking in meat sacrifice to idols. Now, that's a little culturally different than things we deal with today, but, but the point still remains the same. As Christians, do we love other people more than we love our own rights and freedoms? It's a big question, isn't it, right? Especially in the last couple of years. So many arguments, I'm telling you, something I really got sick of hearing Christians say the last couple of years was, it's my right. And I'm like, it may be your right, but it may be putting other people off to the church and to the gospel of Christ. So maybe forfeit that right for the hopes that other people will, will get to know Jesus. So do we love others more than our own preferences? What we're gonna talk about today, chapter nine is very simple. It's not a very complicated chapter, so we'll get through it relatively quick. But what it's going to bring up is, is though easy to understand, maybe not always easy to live. If it's your first time in here, we're, 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 we're pretty honest with each other. And today I'm gonna be very, very honest, and I'll start off with saying, it's not extremely easy to be a Christian right now in the world. Not because I don't love Jesus, just because it seems like all hell is against us right now, right, from every corner. It's tough. It's tough to love people, right? It's tough to, to get along with, man, it's tough to like other Christians right now. It's tough. And so here's what we're gonna talk about today. That the Christian experience, the Christian life is one of sacrifice. We're gonna have to give some things up. It's one of endurance, which means it's not easy. Listen, if you go to a church and they tell you it's all about blessings and prosperity and ease, go ahead and reach back and make sure your wallet's still back there in your pocket. Because that's probably what they're after, right? If you actually read that book, Jesus and all of the, the authors of the, of the Bible make it clear, this is not an easy road to walk. It takes endurance, okay? We'll talk about that today. But even though it's sacrificial, even though it is hard, it's a good life. It's a good life, and there is a reward for us in the afterlife, okay? So it's worth it. Is, it. is it easy? Nope. Is it good? It's good. It's good. It's the best way to live, right? For now and forever, it's the best way to live. That's what we're gonna talk about today. So if you have a Bible, we're right after the book of Romans. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter nine. We'll do all of it, and we'll get through it relatively quick. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be on the TVs all around the room. If you have a smartphone, um, if you download the app and click on sermon notes, it's all right there. All the scripture, all the notes, very, very convenient, okay? So let me pray. We'll jump into this, and um, we're just gonna talk. We're just gonna talk like real people today, okay? We're gonna talk about real life and how the Bible helps us through this real life, okay? Real, real simple stuff. Father, Lord, we love you. God, even though um, we live in a chaotic society and chaotic culture, Lord, we do enjoy a ton of freedoms. And we, we have been prosperous in this nation. And we, we thank you, God, for, for the freedoms and comforts that we have. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to do what we're doing right now. I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, that it's a blessing to us and that it honors you. So, Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for our other campuses. I pray for all of the churches in the different communities where we have churches. God, I pray that we can be a blessing to the world around us, God, as your salt and your light. And Lord, I just pray that everything we do today, God, that it brings us closer to you and, and opens up our mind more to, to understand you better. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit more than I would typically read. Um, bear with me for a second, but there's, there's only a couple natural breaks in this chapter, so um, bear with me here. Here we go. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, that's Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat their own fruit? Who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, it's the first five books of the Bible, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't this really for our sake? Yes, this was written for our sake because he who plows ought to plow in hope and he who threshes should thresh in the hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So Paul had already started this conversation about we as Christians will sacrifice freedoms and benefits for the sake of other people. At the beginning of chapter nine, he opens up with a series of rhetorical questions. He's asking these questions, expecting an affirmative response, right? Am I not this? Yes. Have I not done this? Yes. And what Paul was doing was making his case for being their spiritual authority. Obviously, there were some people pushing back on his authority. I'll talk about that in the next slide. So he is proving the point. He goes, look at my dedication. Look at the work that I've done. God has called me. And so he is showing the fruit of what he's done, proving that he has spiritual kind of fatherhood over this church. Now, why were they upset? One of the reasons they were upset goes back to last chapter. And it's when the, the church was upset that Paul was talking about giving up his freedoms in regards to eating meat, sacrificed idols, giving up this freedom for the sake of others. Now, here's what's interesting. People have not changed much. They were a little upset that, listen, this is not you. This is talking about Christians somewhere else. They, they, this church was upset that their pastor was talking about sacrifice. Now, it's one thing that he's sacrificing. What made them really upset is their pastor looked at them and said, and you're supposed to sacrifice too. Because you don't have to be just a pastor. It's not just pastors that live sacrificial lives. Any of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are called to sacrifice like Jesus. So the work of the ministry is all of ours. It is all of ours. And it goes back to this idea, just because I'm allowed to do something doesn't mean it's beneficial for me to do that thing. 
So it's, a, it's really a posture of the heart, isn't it? It's not a question of, do I have the right to? It's a question of, am I willing to give up a right because I love other people? This is why the Bible says to outdo each other with honor. Because as Christians, we should think and be, be thinking about God and we should be thinking about others. And where we have messed that up so much in American culture is, even in church, it's really all about me. It's really about what I benefit from this. But the problem with that is, is that's not biblical. Sacrifice is part of the Christian experience. To choose to lay down rights for the benefit of others and the glorification of God doesn't mean that we're weak. We have, listen, it sounds like I'm just picking on the United States a lot. It's because we live, it's where we live. Not only that, we probably have the most toxic culture on planet earth right now, both in the church and without. And so here's the thing. We often think that, that giving up our rights makes us weak. We have such a sense of bravado in American culture. It's all about no one's gonna push me around, no one's gonna tell me what to do, no one's gonna step on my toes. If they push me, I push back. And this again is not Christian. It's not a sign of weakness that we lay down our rights. It's actually a sign of strength that we can lay down our rights. Look at the example of Christ who laid down, the creator of the universe. John says, all things were created through him, by him, and for him. And he laid down his rights for us. And that demonstrated Christ's power, not his weakness. So what that means is all of us in this room will feel personal conviction to lay down rights. And that may look different for you than it looks for me. That's why we all have to have a prayer life. That's why we have to have a communication with God because God may convict you about something and it may be different about, about what God convicts me of. You know, you may only listen to Christian music and you feel very, very convicted about that. I don't. I think I was listening to David Bowie on the way to church last night. And, and that's, I like that. But, but anyways, so, and some of you are like, oh, you're terrible. And I'm like, oh, you're judgmental. So anyways, so you may have a different conviction than things I feel convicted about. And that's okay. That's between you and the Lord. Just like it's not a sin for you to drink alcohol. I do not drink alcohol because I have a personal conviction about that. And that's mine. And it may not be yours. And that's fine. The question is, will I lay those things down if it causes someone else to stumble, right? If David Bowie just triggers something in your mind and reminds you of days in the 80s when you're on cocaine binges or something, like, I'll turn it off in my car if that bothers you. I'll, I will not listen to David Bowie in those moments. For the, this is the worst example, guys. Let's go to the next <laughs> slide. So, all the younger people in this room are like, Bowie, who is this guy he's talking about? Anyways, so... So Paul did not take money from the ministry. Um, he advocated for people who took money in the ministry. Thank God, because that's, that's how I feed my kids, right? He said, it's okay for people to start a church and, get a, and, and to get a salary from that, it's fine. But Paul says, I choose not to do that. He laid down that right so he would live above reproach, so people wouldn't think he was in it for the money. And he uses a very practical example. He goes, listen, we don't expect soldiers to fight for free. We don't expect farmers to not eat the crops. We don't expect shepherds to not drink the milk. They have to live. They have to exist. Of course, the balance and the problem in American Christian culture is we have a bunch of actors that claim to be pastors that live in $4 million houses and wear $3,000 shoes. And so listen, so please don't clap for that. That was ugly of me to say, but... but 
Here, here's the problem. This is why so many people are reluctant to give to the church. This is why the reputation of the church is so tainted in the United States because we've really mismanaged the blessings and the, and the benevolence of, of our congregations, right? And so again, the pastor should live kind of at the, at the level of their congregation and we should be transparent about everything. And if we did that, maybe more people would, would likely give and get behind the mission of the church. And so Paul says, is this, my, is this my opinion? He goes, no, it's not my opinion. If you go back to the, the books that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, he even uses an example, Moses. He says, so if you tie an ox and it's treading the grain, literally what they would do is walk on the grain and, and they would eat some of the grain while they would do it. So basically the, the idea of when you put someone to work, they, they should also get to, to eat. And this also implies that we must work to, to make a livelihood. So not just pastors, but all of us are to, to be able to, to put in a good day's hard work, but we shouldn't be restrained. We should be paid what we have done, right? We should earn our wage, and that's just a normal, practical thing. So though Paul makes it very clear that those who preach the gospel should be able to earn a living from the gospel, he also said, I didn't do that. I rejected this right so you guys could never say that it was about me making money. So what we learned from this is we as Christians should work hard, we should earn our livelihood, and we should do it in an honest way. We pay our taxes, we're honest with, with the things at our work, we don't take anything from our job, we don't steal time from our job, we earn our, our, our money and we do it honestly and transparently and with integrity, and I believe God blesses that, right? Okay. For my part, I have used none of these rights nor have I written these things that they may be applied in my case. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I'm just entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? to preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make full use of my rights in the gospel. Verse 19 is very important. Look at this. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings." So Paul was making the case that, that ministers can, can receive a, a paycheck from ministry, but he says, I'm not doing this so you will give me a paycheck. He goes, I just wanna make that clear. Other people can do that. I do not want anything from you, okay? He's just defending his right to lead them. He also says, it would be better for me to die than for someone to deprive me of my boast. What that means, what Paul is saying is, I would rather die than not be able to do what God wants me to do. 
I'd rather die than not be able to fulfill my calling. I would rather die than not be able to preach the gospel and live out the gospel because his relationship with Jesus was everything to him. It was his purpose. It was was why God put him on earth to teach, to preach, to lead others to Christ. And he says, I would rather die if I can't do these things. So look at this. Paul was compelled to preach. He could have made a living by it. He decided not to do that. So he says, what is my reward? My reward is that I get to do this. And so he sacrificed more than what was required of him. Paul could have gotten saved and and never did all the work he did and still have gone to heaven. But that's not how Paul's mentality was. It wasn't just about being saved. It was about how much can I do for Jesus? Now listen, this is not wrong of us. It is not wrong as Christians for us to remember that we, are re- we, we will receive rewards for all the righteous things we have done in this life. Whether no one on earth recognizes we have done those, whether we never get any thumbs up on social media or a promotion or accolades, God sees it all and he will reward us. It is okay for us to think about that because that helps us get through. Man, no one sees the good things I'm doing, but God, you see it. And God, you have a good memory, right? And so you're gonna remember these things and you're gonna honor these things. That's okay. It's okay to live in that. Our problem though in American Christian culture is this. We're not concerned about all the things we can do for God. We just don't wanna go to hell. There are more people in churches right now in the United States who are just looking to escape damnation, not get as close as they can to the one that they claim to follow. Here's the thing, I'm so sick of Christians talking about things like, can I lose my salvation? Does this mean we're saved, blah, blah, blah. If you're married and your spouse keeps saying, do you think we could get divorced? My first reaction is, why do you keep bringing that up? Why are you thinking about that? If you're madly in love with your spouse, the D word never comes up, or it shouldn't. Just like if you're madly in love with your savior, the question of salvation shouldn't even be in the mix. It's irrelevant. What I'm saying is if we're working for the Lord and doing what we can to live righteously and please him, it's not about, it's not about damnation or losing your salvation anymore. It's, I, listen, what Paul wanted for his church is not for them all just to squeak into heaven. He wanted them to have the biggest mansion on the cul-de-sac for eternity. That's what Paul wanted for his churches. And that's what I want for us. Like, like I hope you live such a righteous life that, that I'm weed-eating your yard for eternity. That's fine, I'll be content with that. It's not just about what's the bare minimum, right? What's the least amount of flair we can wear and not get fired. It's about doing something fantastic for God and for his kingdom. (laughs) So again, Paul's attitude was basically, well, even if I don't get rewarded for this in eternity, the sacrifice that I'm making for Jesus is a reward in and of itself. If we understand that Jesus sacrificed everything for us. When we sacrifice and when we suffer, it, don't, it doesn't only honor Jesus, it identifies us with Jesus. I get a kick out of North American Christianity that tries to avoid suffering when it is through suffering that we look the most like Jesus. But we, but we have this culture, right? That we're trying everything we can to avoid sacrifice and suffering. And we've completely missed the point. That's why if you read your Bible in the book of Revelation, all the people who have been martyred, who have suffered for Jesus' sake, they have a VIP section right now in heaven. 
Go ahead, you can find it, you can read it, right? That they are given a special spot, it says under the altar right now. And so there is something about suffering that identifies us with God and we should feel honored to suffer and sacrifice for Jesus because he did it for us. And we should want to do that and we should want to act like him. So Paul says, look, I'm free. Jesus has set me free, but I have chosen to be your slave, that I can serve all kinds of people in the hopes of winning them to Christ. My old pastor used to say something brilliant. He would say, I am your servant, but you are not my master. Chew on that one for a minute. That no one has control over me. I am free, but I submit myself and I want to serve you. This is what Jesus did right? The creator of all things submitted himself to the process and became a servant to his own creation. In that, we are called to be humble and we are called to servitude. And our desire to live sacrificially in order to hopefully win people into a relationship with Jesus, that should take precedent over our rights. Well, Corey, I have the right. You do have the right, but you are to be willing to sacrifice that right for the blessings and hope and and help of people around you. Here's where it gets difficult. We're also called to respect and love everyone. Respect and love everyone. Paul says, when I hung out with the Jews, I followed the, the, the Jewish culture. When I hung out with the Greeks, I followed the Greek culture. That's what he said. And he did that in order to be respectful. As long as it didn't cause him to sin. That's the important thing here. So here's the thing. We are to respect cultural practices. We are even to respect people that live lifestyles that we do not agree with. Without compromising our faith. I'm not trying to sell you on this. I wrote my second book about this exact exact thing. The, the, The trick, the balance, the thing that we are trying to work for as Christians is to reach out to all people, love all people, welcome all people, try to build relationships with all people without letting go of our biblical integrity. This is the the tension that Christians are to live in. Because the bottom line is this, you may disagree with how someone lives, but if we do not treat people with respect and dignity and love, you will never be able to introduce them to Jesus Christ. I'm really fascinated with some some interesting people right now in culture. And I say things like this and people get really upset and they'll look them up and they're like, but they don't, you know, they, they use bad words. I'm like, well, they're not Christians. I can't expect them to necessarily live like that, but I'll give you an example. The other day I'm out in my garage and working on one of my old cars and I'm listening to the radio. It was late at night and Ben Shapiro was on, who is a, a Jewish kind of right-wing conservative, right? Ben Shapiro's on and he has become really, really good friends and they do a lot of things together with Bill Maher, an atheist liberal. And these two men, listen, a Jewish conservative atheist liberal, get on this radio show and they talk civilly for an hour or so on issues that they disagree with. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, we as Christians haven't even accomplished this yet. And you got an atheist liberal and a Jewish conservative modeling it better than I've seen in most churches. This is a problem, brothers, sisters. This is a problem. What we are to do is to build relationships with people dramatically different from us without compromising our faith. It's the 11 o'clock. Let me tell you a fun story. I didn't tell it the nine because, I don't know, I kind of forgot. But uh, I'll tell it to you guys. I told it yesterday. 
Um, we do a lot of work with churches up in New England. And, and again, I've, I've already said enough to where if you're new, you're like, no, nah, I don't care for this guy. But uh, up in Salem, Massachusetts, they had the head of the satanic church, um, the head of the satanic temple. There are two different factions of Satanism, West Coast, East Coast. I've never been to the one in San Francisco, but I've been in the headquarters in Salem, Mass several times. And a couple of years ago, I brought some people that worked here. We went to the Salem Temple, uh, the Salem Satanic Temple. You have to pay to get in. There's a curator. And I was in there, and we're walking around with the curator. I just wanted to see this, right? Wanted to see what it's all about. So we're walking around the Satanic Temple, and really nice guy, and he's showing us stuff and telling us all the different pieces and the big nine-foot-tall bronze Baphomet statue that they've made documentaries about. I saw that, and we're walking around talking. Towards the end of this, you know, we're joking around the whole time. We're talking about music and movies and blah, blah, blah. And I'm asking him how he got into Satanism and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of this tour, the curator goes, hey, Corey, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and um, I was sitting there and I was like, well, uh, I, I pastor a church outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And for about two minutes, he was buckled over like this, uh, laughing. And then he says, I've never met anyone like you before. And I said, we're all not jerks, man. Like... Like, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure to hear your story. And we just go, well, so we went our separate ways. I was back in Salem with Josh Brooker about a month later doing some more work with that church. And I'm sitting in a coffee shop in downtown Salem, Mass. And walks this guy, this curator. He walks in and he looks up and he sees me and he goes, oh my gosh, Corey, my Christian friend. And I said, hey, you know, <laughs> satanic curator guy. And we, we <laughs> but, but he, runs, he runs over to me. He runs over to me and just bear hugs me. And he's hugging me and I'm like, man, it's good to see you. And we sit down and we just talk and we have coffee for about a half hour. Now listen, did he recant everything and give his life to Jesus in that moment? No, but what he did see is that not all Christians hate him. What he saw, what he saw in that moment, right? What he saw in that moment is that I cared for him as a person. I saw him as a person. And I'm not trying to brag on me, but what I'm trying to do is model somehow for you if we can get past all the talking points, do you want to know why most people get into Satanism? Not, he doesn't believe in Satan. The curator of the Satan doesn't even believe that there is a devil. The reason he got into it was he was a nerdy kid that got beat up a lot and he looked for a group of people that would just welcome him. Most of these people that get into these extreme fringes of culture, it's not because they're just the worst people that ever lived. They're looking for something that we possess. And if we do not create some kind of relationship with them, there is no hope of them seeing the light. We have to learn to do that without letting go of our biblical integrity. That is the trick. So Paul also says that I became weak for the weak. He's talking about Christians. This goes back to like the drinking thing. Though I have the right to drink, if you're weak in your faith, I will give that up so it doesn't cause you to stumble. Paul says I became all things to all people so that some may be saved. So again, we sacrifice freedoms for, for, for people not to stumble, for them to keep growing. And if we enjoy freedoms because we value our freedoms more than we value other people and it causes them to sin, we have sinned. We have sinned. Mike talked about this last week, last part. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one race receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. 
So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So what Paul is doing, this is very important too, guys. What Paul is doing, the reason why he's using the example of a marathon in boxing, there's multiple reasons, but one of them is it was a cultural reference. In Corinth, they had kind of a mini Olympic games in Corinth uh, named after the Isthmus of Corinth. The Isthmian games is what they're called. They would do marathons, they would do fighting, they would do other kind of things like, like the Olympics basically. So Paul uses a cultural analogy to connect with them and bring them to a principle of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I hope you guys hear me correctly on this. There is a very extreme danger in living in a Christian bubble. Now let me tell you what that danger is. Going back to my, my satanic friend up in Salem. If we only listen to Christian music, only watch Christian movies, only learn how to speak Christianese, the only ones we can talk to are other Christians. We have no bridge to communicate to people that are not Christians. Paul understood this, right? Again, this all takes wisdom. This doesn't mean we indulge in sinful or evil things, but there's got to be some way to where we cross that bridge and connect with other people. And Paul would use cultural reference. In one of his books, he says, like your poets say. That'd be similar to saying, like that famous band says, boom. This applies to our faith, right? And here he's using a sports example, basically. One more story. So one time I was speaking up at a huge church in Auburn Hills, uh, uh, Michigan, up near Detroit. And I'm speaking at this big church and it was a part of a denomination and um, they had been kind of stuck in the, it was a big church, but, but they weren't growing. They were kind of this very Christian bubble thing. They had a preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school, college in the church and then most of them would graduate and then go to work for the church. It was very, very, very insulated. So I get picked up from the airport. There's three or four hours before I have to speak. And um, we go to Starbucks, right? So we go to Starbucks and, and, and the pastor of the church is in front of me and he's on his phone the whole time because that's what real pastors do. They just tweet all the time. And so he's doing this and the barista comes up. What can you get? Oh, blah, 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 blah. He goes to the end of the line, right? I go up next. I'm wearing... <laughs> I'm wearing a Cure shirt from one of the concerts that my wife and I saw. It's a band from the 80s. Um, so I, I went and I'm wearing this Cure shirt and I walk up, girl walks up and is like, hey, how you doing? She goes, oh, I'm good. She goes, you like The Cure? I was like, I love The Cure. Do you like The Cure? And we get to talking about The Cure. And I said, are you a student here? And there's a big university called Oakland's up there. I said, are you a student at Oakland? She goes, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a degree in English. I'm like, I have a degree in English, isn't that cool? So we get to talking, I learn her name and she learns my name, I haven't even ordered a drink yet and we're just talking. And she goes, well, what are you doing up here in Auburn Hills? I said, I'm speaking at this, this big church down the road, you ever heard of it? And she goes, yeah, I'm just not a church person. But she goes, I, I, I really like you though, can I come hear you speak tonight? And I was like, of course you can, I'd love to hear you come speak. Here's my, here's my number, if you get lost or if you whatever, I'll see you tonight. And she came and she heard me speak. And so I looked down at the end of this, this Starbucks line and this pastor was looking at me like, and he had stopped tweeting or whatever he was doing. His eyes are real big. And I, this is a true story. Later on that night, they bring me in front of this, this, this big church and I'm standing up there, this is a true story. Pastor has his arm around me, he goes, hey everyone, this is Pastor Corey. He talks to people. And I was sitting there and I was like, in my head, I'm like, what do you guys do? 
But the reason he was so fascinated is, is he had never experienced anything outside the bubble. But there's no way to connect with people unless we learn to speak their language a little bit. Unless we have some way. One more story, man, it's 11 o'clock, guys. I could just, we just stay here for hours, couldn't we? <laughs> There's, there's, a, there's a Starbucks here in town. I got to be really, really good friends with a gay man. He's married to another man, and we've been friends now for, man, about five years now, pretty good friends. And I got to know him because I rolled through the line one day, and he's wearing a Chevron shirt, and I'm um, kind of like a button-up with Chevron pattern on it, and we pull up, and I was like, man, reminds me of Twin Peaks. He goes, my favorite show of all time. And I was like, really? I love Twin Peaks. We got to know each other. We've become really, really good friends. Again, has he recanted everything? Has he flipped his whole world upside down? No, but we have that relationship. And I remember when this young man's fa father passed away, the only one he wanted to talk to, to about it was me. We have to open that door. We have to build that bridge. We have to find some way to connect with people because we want to build a relationship with them. So what Paul says is that this Christian life is like a marathon. And like a marathon, not everyone finishes marathons, right? Not everyone finishes it. So we have to always be moving forward. And our works should reflect the fact that we are moving towards Jesus. Runners must also train. Just like Paul says, we must be disciplined. We must have self-control, right? If you're gonna run a marathon, you have to work at it. It's the same thing with keeping that relationship with Jesus that we have to keep focused. Runners have a goal. Just like we cannot run aimlessly, we have to focus on Christ and we have to keep moving towards that goal, right? And honor him in everything we do. And he also says, unlike runners, they receive a temporary reward, you receive an eternal reward. But you have to be consistent we have to be disciplined in our faith. He also attributes our faith to a fight. He talks about boxing, right? And so in this, again, Paul is not talking about salvation. He's not talking about losing your salvation. What Paul is talking about, he goes, when you get into those championship rounds in boxing, you don't just wanna win on the scorecard, you wanna knock the enemy out, right? You, you, you wanna complete this, you wanna finish it, you wanna do everything you can. You don't just wanna slip over the, the finish line. You wanna to run to win. That's what he's saying. So listen, all of us are called in some way, but we do not fight this fight alone. We do not run this race alone. We have the word of God, we have each other, and we have God. We have the Holy Spirit that is with us. That's why Jesus says, listen, in the Great Commission, he says, go out and baptize, teach, and disciple. If you've ever tried to do those things, it's hard. That's why at the end, when Jesus told all of his followers, baptize, teach, disciple, he says, and remember, I am with you. You're not alone. You're not fighting this thing alone. You're not walking this thing out alone. I'm with you. I'm with you. So here's the thing. Every single one of you in this room that claims to be a Christian Every single one of you. I don't care if you're introverted. I don't care if you've done some test that says you're a number five or an INFJ or whatever the case may be. I don't care how awkward you feel. I don't care about any of that. If you follow Christ, you're called to lead in some capacity. So all of us are called to lead in some capacity. That may be you just witnessing, right? The Bible says that some are called to be evangelists. Your, your gifting may be going out and just telling people about Jesus, planting that seed. But you're called to lead in some way. 
Some of you may disciple a friend in a long-term relationship that brings you both closer to Christ. Some of you, your call to leadership may be with your family, right? Or within your marriage. It may be serving in your city or who knows, you may be called to full-time vocational ministry, right? But all of us are called to lead. And so if we're leaders, we are to demonstrate that God is working through us. That means works. Everyone gets nervous when we say works. Now listen, we'll just be clear. You are not saved by your works, but you are not saved from your works either. I'll say it one more time. You're not saved by the good things that you do, but you're not saved from doing good things either. If you have been saved by grace through faith, we are to be producing fruit in our lives, doing good things, right? That draw attention to God. We are to demonstrate Again, James, the literal brother of Jesus said, you can tell me you have faith, I will show you I have faith by what I do, by public works, right? Serving people, loving people, uh, um, um, going out and doing things in the community, personal works, reading the word of God, praying, building that relationship. These are works, right? We're not saved by them, we're saved to them. No, all of us have been called and this calling also demands a sacrifice. A relationship with Jesus and demonstrating Jesus to others calls for obedience, but it also calls for us periodically laying down rights for the sake of others. Giving up freedoms for the sake of causing others not to stumble, for the sake of being a good witness to those that don't know him, that we will periodically have to lay these things down. And though we may have the right to do something, we have to ask ourselves, does my desire to advance the kingdom of God outweigh my personal freedoms? Does my desire to love others outweigh my personal freedoms? And again, I'm gonna be a jerk for a second. I think during all the COVID time, we saw that a lot of people valued their personal rights more than they valued their neighbor. Listen, I hated wearing a mask. I did, I'll just be honest, I hated it. I got vaccinated, not even because of the safety issue, I just didn't wanna wear a mask. I, I, I hated wearing a mask. I will also say this, my mother-in-law has cancer. And when I would hear people go, well, I don't care, I'm not, I'm not gonna wear that thing. Well, that elderly person next to you might have cancer and they might be terrified that if they get sick, because they're gonna die, I'll put on the stupid mask because I value you, right? When you walk into someone's personal business and you're like, I ain't gonna wear it, that's their business. You're gonna walk into someone's house and they tell you to take off your shoes and you're like, nope, it's rude. And it's not a good example. But a lot of people valued their own personal freedoms more than they valued that person that owns that business or that person that might have cancer. We're just talking real, guys. And listen, if you hate me for that, I think that's a problem with your heart. If you, if you want me to be honest. Because we need to, the Bible says to outdo each other with honor. Outdo each other with honor. That's how we're to live as Christians. Listen, this is where it gets difficult. We're also to love and respect everybody. There is a very deceptive narrative right now in our culture that if you and I disagree, we must hate each other. That is not a Christian teaching. In fact, the Bible says that we are to live peaceably with all people. That is a lie. If the, just because I disagree with you doesn't mean I hate you. What we have a tendency to do though in our culture is we have a tendency to point out everyone else's sin because it's a lot easier to talk about what other people are doing wrong versus what we may be doing wrong, right? That's what we tend to do in our culture. And so though people may live contrary to the Bible, we are to love them. 
We're to show them respect in the hopes that they see Jesus in us and that eventually their heart gets touched by Jesus. What do you mean by we pick on other people and, and not ourselves? We're just going there today. You know, the Bible, you know, the Bible mentions homosexuality six times. Three in the Old Testament, three in the New. If you wanna fact check me on that, you can do that. Three in the Old, three in the New. And it's very clear about how God feels about same-sex relationships, right? It's very clear. The church hammers on that a lot. Do you know the Bible also says greed is a sin over 70 times? We don't hammer on that as much, do we? Because that's what a lot of us are dealing with. It's a lot easier to look at the splinter in your neighbor's eye over there and neglect the log that sticks out of our own. Hmm. That's why we go through the Bible the way we do, so we speak of sin in the frequency that God speaks of sin. But it's a lot easier to point at everyone else's sin. We're to love and respect people, even if we don't agree with them. We are to love and respect people. All this to say, guys, it's not easy being a Christian right now. I don't know if it's ever going to be easy to be a Christian. I don't know during the times when it was easy, I don't think that was good for Christianity. I think we've been too comfortable for too long. If you're waiting for the tide to turn and it just becomes like the cool hip thing to be a Christian, I would not hold your breath. It is hard. I'm raising a 13-year-old right now who's a good kid. Man, she's a good kid. She served at the, the Shelbyville campus this morning, her and my wife and my youngest. Good kids, man. But I pick up my daughter every Tuesday. I take her to school every day except for Friday. And we have conversations and she'll say, Dad, everyone believes this. And I'm like, but that's wrong. She's like, but Dad, everyone believes it. And I'm like, it's still wrong. It's still wrong. And so raising a teenager right now, man, there is unrighteousness and there are lies coming from every angle. That's not just kids, man. That's, that's all of us in this room. You can't look at a billboard that's not hypersexualized. You can't go through YouTube without seeing hypersexualized stuff. You can't get on the news without hearing hatred and vitriol and lies. You can't do anything without sinful, ugly things coming at you from every side. This is why Paul says, Paul was in the Roman Empire during this time. It was evil. And Paul goes, man, this is a fight. This is a fight. Paul goes, this is a marathon, right? We have to work hard because this is tough. And it's okay to say it's tough, guys. What that, what that needs to lead us to is not despair or giving up or laying down or throwing in the towel. That's not where it should lead us to understand and be honest that it is tough. It is tough to live righteously. It is tough to always do the right thing. It is tough to love people, right? That is tough. What that should push us to, if we wanna grow in our faith, if we do wanna love others, if we do wanna live the way the Bible teaches us to live, we have to be completely dependent on Christ. Completely dependent. I was reading something the other night where someone was talking about self-love. And most of the time when, man, man, this is so rude. Most of the time when I hear people say self-care, it usually translates to selfish. But anyways, it was self-care of this. I just need this time for me and then I'm, gonna, then I'm gonna go to church. And I heard that and I said, we've gotten the cart before the horse. 
if we would just learn to pursue Jesus with all we have, we would learn to love and appreciate ourselves. Because listen, hold on, hold on. We cannot understand who we are until we understand who he is. And what we're doing is I'm gonna find myself and then I'll pursue God. You'll never find yourself. Because it is impossible to know what the creation is unless we understand the creator. So we must pursue him first. If we would just seek him, if we would just lean on him, if we would just be honest with him and say, God, it is hard right now. Nowhere in that Bible does it give us the illusion that it's going to be easy. That's why Jesus said in this life, you're gonna suffer, right? In this life, you're gonna suffer. It's hard, it's tough. That's why every day we must fall on him. We must lean on him. We must be utterly dependent on him. God, I cannot do this without you. I cannot do it. We have to be doing that. Listen, here's the encouraging part. Is it tough? Man, it's tough. It's tough. But the price that we pay now not only honors God, not only is there a temporary blessing for sacrifice and suffering for Jesus right now, there is an eternal reward. Listen, I think way too often Christians forget that this is not your home. Well, Corey, I feel out of place. You are out of place. This is not your home. You are not designed. We think we are bodies with souls. We are not, we are souls with bodies. The body is temporary, it passes. All of this will go away. There is something beyond this. There is this hope that lies beyond this. When you get into the end of Revelation, if you ever decide to brave the book of Revelation and go through it, once you get back towards the, the, the back of it, towards the end, I love the way Revelation ends. John gives us this very descriptive view, the best of his abilities, of heaven. There will be the wiping away of the old heavens, the universe, and the earth, and God would create a new universe and a new earth. There will be this beautiful city called the New Jerusalem that will come down out of the sky, rest on the new earth. It says the gates will be open. We can explore this new universe, this new earth. We get to live in this beautiful place with streets of gold and pearly gates. And it talks about isotropic stones that, 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 that reflect light of every color and this beautiful garden in the center. But that is not the crux of eternity. Oh, man. Even beyond all of those beautiful things, do you, do you know what I wanna do one day? I wanna hold the face of my savior and I just wanna look in his eyes. I just wanna see the one that saved my life. I want to say, hold on, I just want to see the one. I want to see the one that died for me. I want to look into his eyes. I, 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 I don't really care so much about a new heaven or a new earth. And I don't mean that in any disrespect, Lord, when I say that. I just want to be with him. And listen, we need to have it stored deep down somewhere inside of us that this is not our forever. Don't get too comfortable here. I know it's a fight. I know it's tough, right? But it's not forever. It's not forever. And our hope is not just for our eternity, but we need to bring as many people with us up there as possible. We need to learn to start looking at other humans like they are eternal souls as well. Is it hard? 
We're lying to ourselves if we say it's not. It is hard. But it's worth it, and it's good. And one day, it's gonna be this inexplicable eternity. As good as John describes it in Revelation, I don't think the mind can comprehend what we're gonna see. This is why Jesus so beautifully looked at his disciples. He knew his disciples were all going to suffer. All of them except for one died a natural death. That was John. And John was boiled alive and exiled. But Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, look, look, look at me. In my father's house are many mansions. And if that weren't true, Jesus says, I wouldn't tell you. In my father's house. As these, as these young men were about to be sent out like sheep to a slaughter, the Bible says. Jesus says, just hold on. Because in my father's house are many mansions. I promise is what he says. Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, if you are in this room and maybe you're not a believer, but you're curious, maybe you have questions, maybe, maybe you're afraid to make this decision or walk down this road. If you have any questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. He's the one that taught last week. I'm not trying to puff him up. He's very learned when it comes to the Bible. He's, he's very wise. If you have any questions, please talk to Mike. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, anything, please come up here and get prayer. And then the very last thing is all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, there's bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you have asked Jesus to, to forgive you of your sins, you can take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine. And listen, what that reminds us of is your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Going back to the Great Commission, make disciples, baptize, teach, this marathon, this fight, right? What communion reminds us of is at the end of that Great Commission what Jesus says, and I'm with you until the end of time. When we ingest that communion, we can be reminded that not only does God love us, God is with me. I'm not alone in this. Even if no human on earth knows who I am, God knows who I am. I am not alone. I am not alone. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I pray blessings over everyone in this room. Father, God, keep us strong. Lord, keep us utterly dependent on you, Father. Let us, let us glean wisdom from your word. Lord, let us put our faith into action. Let us be vulnerable. Let us be honest, God. Lord, when we are struggling, Jesus, give us the courage to throw our arms up and just say, God, I cannot do this unless you lead me. I cannot do this unless you help me. I cannot do this unless you lead the way, God. It is only then when we put all of our dependence on him that we start to pick up the pace in this marathon, that we start to turn it on during those championship rounds towards the end of a fight. Gotta lean on him. Lord, we love you. We thank you, we praise you, God. Keep your hand on my friends, God, in Jesus' name. Amen, God bless you guys. Hope you have a good rest of your week.